Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Rand Oliver, CEO of Viking Minerals, who discusses the evolution of the space since starting Viking back in 2012, some of the similarities between investing in minerals and royalties and real estate, and why yield-driven investors with patient capital are a natural fit for this asset class. I hope you enjoy. Rand, um... Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Uh, Let's start by giving a personal introduction. Um, Where you're from, where where you're currently based, and you know your your personal background, university, how you got in the industry, and how long you've been in the minerals royalty space. Yeah, thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. Um, So I am based in Oklahoma City, um, and went to University of Oklahoma. So you call me. I'm a born and raised Okie for better or worse, depending on who's listening. But um, yeah, so we've been here um, and been in the mineral mineral and royalty space for about uh, eight years, uh, a little less than eight years now. May of 2012 is when we formed uh, our company. Uh, Prior to that, um, I worked in a family office doing real estate for approximately about eight, eight, nine years, um, which has some interesting uh, parallels to minerals, uh, and is one of the things that got me interested in, in the space uh, originally. Um, <clears throat> from a real estate perspective, we were doing, you know, the, the, the family was doing a combination of, um, you know, re- regional real estate development. Um, the main jewel was really the um, about 2 million square feet of Class A office space that was purchased between 2000 and 2000 six call it um in downtown oklahoma city there was some pretty large turnover so i spent a lot of my early career getting to understand that investment class the you know the 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 yield component the the you know the management component of all those things and and um really i mean if we want to look at how that led into minerals i think that you know a lot of the projects and the developments you end up having to go through approval processes from city council members and different, you know, parts along the way. And there's, there were some failed projects and some bureaucracy that, um, uh, and sort of a general lack of speed of velocity of the business that became you know, challenging for, for me. Um, so uh, in you know, 2010, 2011 is when I started looking around thinking of what the next deal is going to be. If you familiar with oil and gas where the cycle was at that period. I mean, that was when things were really ramping up, um, you know, play, you know, some major plays were discovered in 2008, you know, people are really digging into the Midland basin in 2010, uh, Eagleford in 2010, 2008, um, tons of activity and I yeah, couldn't help but notice things around me that were going on. Um, but I had no energy expertise, uh, you know, not an engineer by trade, not anything to that extent, no energy management, but had, had, had underst- understood, uh, you know, the asset class and had, had a decent background in that uh, from just a real estate perspective. So that is what sent me that direction. Um, and so we just started from the ground, started from zero. Um, 
buying minerals, um, selling them. The asset class at that time, 2012, really, this is before, you know, private equity had come in and spent a bunch of money. Uh, this is before a lot of people were doing, it was really mom and pop style in 2010, 2012. And that's really when it started to get more sophisticated. So we just got out there and started doing it. Um, so, uh, you know, time. on that, there, there's a couple of follow up questions. I want uh, a lot of good points made there. Let's start with, you know, you started in 2012. You mentioned at the time it was kind of mom and pop game. You know, minerals and royalties are interesting because it's a really hot space. And you're a young guy and 2012 is not that long ago, but you're you're somewhat of an industry vet. Right. I mean, if you're a minerals and royalties company who's been around for eight years, that's that's longer than most. So let's start with talking about how the space has evolved, how it's different from when you got into it. You mentioned, you know, as companies have gotten more sophisticated, what have you seen in the space and then how has Viking uh, kind of evolved to uh, to adapt and stay competitive? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So really, I think that, you know, minerals and royalties are going to track the evolution of the space. Um, at that time, you know, you've got really the, the if you're going to spin it back into the 2000s, you know, prior to us starting, I mean, yes, I do think to your point about we've been in it for a long time. Um, and, you know, the people that were in it prior to us getting into it have had to evolve or really change their model. And, and so to that point, you look at what was going on in energy in general, you've got the biggest land grab, you know, <laughs> you know, since the wild west going on um, across, you know, multiple states. And that was really the value driver for companies during that time was where is there more in the ground that we can go lease and potentially get access to. And so millions of acres are leased from 2000 to 2000. 14 really um so we come in at the tail end of what you know would you consider the land grab phase um and where we were really trying to sort of kind of play guesswork and be out ahead of the drill bit you know but also trying to buy some things that weren't leased yet um and so you know the the evolution's just continued um since then uh you look at 2012 to 2000 you know call it 16, 17, that five-year window, people have, for the most part, across, you know, the whole shale space, which is huge, as you know, so this is not indicative of every region in play, but for the most part, people have drilled their first well and got their positions put together that, that now they understand a little bit more about what they had. Um, and then it was, where do we go from here? And, and I think, it, one Oklahoma City company was a real driver of this back in 2012, drilling the Cana Woodford shale in in Canadian County in Oklahoma, where they started doing pad drilling. And they would show up and drill 10 wells in a section and with reasonably decent results. Um, and that sort of became uh, an innovation that everybody has started to expand since then, I recall, the last five years. So we uh you know we've just tried to track that evolution uh you know where the value was on the land to start now it's really on understanding development and operator and pace and, and a lot of things like that for minerals if you're really trying to not only put together a portfolio that's got great inventory for future development but one that is currently receiving you know enough cash flows to to really be 
um, distributed to your investors, to your LPs. Um, because if you're not, you know, we make our distributions monthly because we every LP we have, I'm sure, including ourselves, enjoys getting a check every month. Um, and since they send them every month, we might as well forward them on. Awesome. So I want to go back on, you know, kind of your point on being in real estate and then transitioning into minerals and royalties. I think one thing that we hear a lot from our network is that there's a need to expand the buyer universe and the buyers of these assets are going to be non-traditional when you look at, you know, the traditional buyers of assets for EMP and, and midstream and oil field service assets. These, these could be non-industry folks, folks that are purely financial or don't really have, um, you know, an, an interest in, in operating anything because of the nature of minerals and royalties, there are no operations, right? Real estate um, is one huge potential pool of, of capital kind of come in. When you look at 1031 exchange or, or, or other real estate structures, can, can you talk about the similarities? And then also you came into the space, you said, I'm not an engineer, I'm not an oil and gas guy, but you've done quite well and have built up Viking Minerals over the years. What, what can you say about that um, and being able to come in and leverage financial, financial sophistication in order to be successful and still make returns in the space? And, and your answer there is kind of speaking to the family offices, the pension funds, the endowments, real estate investors that might be interested in this space but are saying, uh, I don't know, I'm not an oil and gas guy, maybe this is dangerous. Can, can you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I think that, you know, anytime you go into a new industry uh, or you cross, you know, the, the, the borders of call it a technology company or a real estate company or oil and gas company, you know, all the, all the lingo and the technology or not, not the technology, but the lingo is something that understanding all the, the, the abbreviations for everything. There's, there's just kind of a barrier to entry that just, you have to stick your nose in there. But the truth is, is that, they're, they're, they're all sort of capable of being translated across industries. Yield is, is yield, you know, you go the financial way, um, you know, but I think that the, just to speak to the, how um, real estate and oil and gas sort of parallel one another, you know, um, you know, if you own an office building, you've got property managers, you've got tenants, you've got, uh, you know, people that have to engineers that take care of, of various parts of the property. It's a living and breathing organism to an extent that requires a tremendous amount of management. Um, and then from a purchase perspective, depending on your marketplace, you know, Midtown Manhattan is different from Dallas is different from Oklahoma City, but you know, you're buying on five cap, six cap, eight cap yields, you know, you're looking at, you know, sort of those those sort of, uh, you know, kind of returns uh, just on the purchase price. Um, and then, you know, you look at, you look at minerals and you say, you know, all right, it's, it's not necessarily an, an, an asset because of the way oil declines. You say that, you know, there's a decline there, but you're, you're really, you're, you're, you're buying into the inventory for the future development. And if you're, if you're doing what we're doing and you're taking what we consider to be very minimal, you know, geologic risk, uh, minimal uh, operator risk, which, you know, if you're going to compare that to an office building, what I would say is, you know, your geologic risk is no different than where your building is going to be located. You know, if you're in, you know, 
New Jersey is different from Midtown Manhattan, right? So you 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 know you want those. That's a comparison there. You know the difference between your operator would be like your rent roll. Okay, my rent roll. I've got five great you know class A tenants occupying my whole building. Uh, you know with varying you know terms. Uh, this is a really solid asset versus maybe one big kind of iffy credit. You know there's there's definitely some parallels to that that you could make. Uh, you could say that if I'm uh, if I own minerals under ConocoPhillips in Carnes County in in South Texas, that's some of the best real estate, uh, oil and gas real estate in the United States. It's better than owning something, you know, in Kansas where you know there's nobody drilling any vertical wells. It just kind of goes to, or any horizontal wells rather. So um, that would be one way to sort of draw comparisons between the two of them. Um, generally speaking you know, we see mineral investments as an equity only deal. They, they certainly will support debt. We have not utilized debt. Whereas, you know, and you've got a little bit more to think about from a debt standpoint, real estate traditionally is a pretty, you know, heavy, uh, you know, leverage adjusted returns. So there's just some of the nuances between the two. But I think that the big thing to your point about, you know, speaking to the, uh, to the pension, uh, types in that class, um, the institutional investor, I think the bottom line is that this asset class, because they are perpetual assets, I think they're a winner for patient money uh, that's looking for maybe uh, a slightly higher yield uh, with the trade-off that you've got, you know, declines in oil and gas uh, and your sort of, commo your, your, your leverage to towards commodity prices, uh, which is a slightly different risk than, you know, uh, interest rate risk or debt adjusted risk or, you know, rent roll risk. Uh, there's risk in both. Uh, there's risk in everything. But to me, uh, you know, seven to 10, you know, eight to ten, seven to 10, eight to 12 years sort of hold periods in prime real estate is going to serve you well anywhere, um, whether it's in Carnes County or Midtown Manhattan. And so um, to me, that's what we've really focused ourselves on is being, you know, really good underwriters, uh, understanding where the right places to be are, and then really not taking any sort of, you know, mitigating our risk because you're a non-operator. That would be one other comparison is if you, it's your office building, you're managing it. I mean, you're doing everything you can to recruit tenants, keep your existing tenants happy, you know, improve the building when you can. And in a non-operated situation, we can only bet on the best horse uh, which can be a drawback, but that's where I go back to the the timeline of expectations and the returns that go along with that. No, and, and so on that point, right, you mentioned kind of managing the real estate asset. Although you, you don't have control of the minerals and royalties assets, you also have no overhead and no contribution on costs. The, you know, when you're talking about insurance companies and other LPs who have traditionally said, yeah, I want commodity exposure in my portfolio, let me invest as an LP into a private equity fund or directly into the fund of a company. You know, the, the, the shift that a lot of players in the minerals royalty space want to see is these LPs coming in and buying direct. And, and the argument is these are turnkey assets. If you have patient money, the yields will be there. Why would you pay double fees through a fund? Can you speak to that and really, um, you know, why, why it's a, an attractive thing for, for these types of institutions to make a, a bit of a shift in mentality. Yeah, I would say that, you know, one thing, if, if people are wanting to 
you know, dip a toe, so to speak, they may be willing to, to make a smaller investment. We actually have a few funds that are invested in our funds. So we do have some people that are doing that. Um, and, and I think that it's to, to see the best way for them to access the assets. There's a number of ways that this could be structured. Um, you could structure it. And, and let me just say from our standpoint at Viking, we, I think, are always going to raise sort of local friends and family capital uh, because we believe in ourselves and the asset class. So we're always going to want to be aligned with whoever we're, we're working with, uh, you know, structurally speaking. So um, there are a number of different ways to do this. You could, um, you know, you can either have a, a hands-off, you know, sidecar managed deal where, you know, essentially you're, you're, you're uh, putting, you know, customizing and putting this basket of assets together for a potentially larger partner while co-investing alongside of them. We like that idea. Um, you know, and the management, it can be sort of decided between it. It kind of depends on who you are and do you want to staff up to do it or not. Um, to your point, there's not a huge amount of overhead. You still have to pay attention to keep everybody honest, make sure everybody is, uh, is paying you correctly and doing what they're supposed to, to do. Um, so, so yeah, that, that, that I think, um, you know, that, that entry point is, is interesting as, as a co-invest deal, um, you know, direct invest backing a team is another thing that has been done quite a bit by traditional private equity recently. I think that that could be an interesting strategy as well. Um, some sort of a hybrid between a co-invest and really in some sort of a backing, I don't have like a particular like structure or product in, in mind. I just think that, um, you know, being able to get as close to the company as possible and understand each other the best possible from just like the, the, the goals and the asset class of what we're going for. Um, I think that alignment is huge. And I think that from our standpoint, we feel like uh, the best way to mitigate, you know, any concerns from our LPs and our funds is to be invested directly beside them. And, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't make the bets if we didn't believe on believe in them in the first place. No, absolutely. Um, it, and let, let's kind of talk about the Viking mineral story a little bit more. You've kind of mentioned bits and pieces of your strategy. I think taking a step back, it would be helpful as well to explain how the, the food chain works and minerals and royalties, right. And where you guys fit in, you guys are more at the aggregation level. And from a financial perspective, why, why are, are firms like you needed? to roll up assets um, and then to sell them up the food chain, if you may. And, and why, why can you make money and they can make money at the same time? And, you know, I'm referring to deal size and volume and, you know, different multiples and different sizes, right? If you want to speak to that and, and how it ties into the Viking mineral strategy. Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> one of the things that we started, we, we realized early on that, that, um, you know, the most value is created by going, direct to the actual owner. So we're speaking to specific landowners uh, that maybe we're offering them $100,000, maybe we're offering them $10 million. Um, you know, we, we certainly weren't in 2012, but you know, we, we've grown up a little bit since then. But um, that value, creating that value from that point is really, it, that, that's critical, right? That's the wholesale buy aspect to it. Um, if you wanna track, give just a brief background of how we evolved from 2012 to 2020, you know, 2012 to 2014 was really a discovery phase for us of the business. We were learning how it worked. We understood at that time, these big land title companies um, 
these big land machines that are operating on day rates and running 200 guys for Chesapeake and Devon and all these different people, EOG, um, you know, that was a very inefficient way for somebody like ourselves to go out and access the mineral market. So we had to find a better way to do that. Our first real innovation was creating, uh, you know, efficiency through a software system that bypassed traditional land-based systems. So we aggregate the information, we internalize the information and make it effective for us to be able to go out and contact these people um, without incurring just, you know, huge costs in an inefficient sort of third-party way, which has been a theme for us is taking third-party work and bring it internally so that we have really a fully funded internal ecosystem from, you know, basically uh, from phone call to closing to management. Um, so there is some inherent uh, wholesale versus retail, um, you know, arbitrage there. Um, 2014 you know, to 2017 really was when, that was really when private equity came into the space. And so that's when we started to see for the first time, 100 million, $200 million commitments out there looking for ways to get access to the assets and deploy capital. So that transition, we were able to partner with some of the other firms on sort of specific buy areas. Um, we were using our efficiencies and creating new efficiencies through essentially software, uh, technology, CRM type of, of things to become more efficient and create scale. Um, the scale is always, um, you know, these plays aren't, you know, two square miles of land. They're hundreds of miles of land with thousands of owners. So you have to really be able to uh, understand, you know, touch everybody to be able to, to, to bring those uh, bring those assets to those newly funded teams at that time and help them sort of fill up their funds. Uh, and then if you want to say from 2017 to the present, I mean, candidly, towards the end of that time period for us, we didn't really like being beholden to other people's market pricing. And, and we had an understanding of, of how pricing was derived and how people were, were generally underwriting, but we hadn't really dove in. So really the last three years, <clears throat> we've really made that our primary focus uh you know we we got good at the aggregation game uh we were good enough to scale up in the aggregation game now we need to become experts at the underwriting piece of the game and and do it at scale uh for the reasons i mentioned previously so we raised our first fund in june of uh 2017 uh we sold it it was sort of a con you know, proof of concept fund build the flip type of deal Fortunately, you know, we timed the market pretty well. Um, we made just, just about a 2x on the invested capital there in 15 months. Um, and we had a good yield component on it too. We weren't just buying, um, you know, uh, yeah, just, just, you know, acreage that, you know, didn't have any ancillary value. We were buying, you know, heavily cash flowing, you know, uh, assets, 15, 18% annualized yields during just the nine month window that we had the fund. And so we've just tried to continue to duplicate that and get better um, and scale our own capital base has really been the most recent focus for us. We're, we're fortunate to have a decent network to be able to continue to um, you know, scale up on friends and family. And we're about 20 to $25 million per fund. So, I mean, I just want to make that point. Just, you know, we didn't turn a million dollars into two, you know, we, it was a little bit bigger and broader portfolio based sort of approach. Um, so that, that's my reason for making that point. And so, you know, we continue to move down that road um, and try to continue to evolve within the food chain. We realize that our funds 
are incubating for somebody else in the future um, that our LPs will want an exit at some point. Um, but that in that conversion of the inventory over time, the more pads show up that we didn't pay for the, the more time that we get in those, you know, prime areas, I think the better our returns are going to be. No, fantastic. And, and just to clarify, um, you guys are Eagle Fruit focused, correct? Uh, is there a different basin strategy? I think in closing here, if there's some messages you want to give uh, to two groups, right? The industry in terms of, you know, people who might be interested in buying you, larger royalty companies, partnerships with EMP companies and, and other sorts of partnership structures. If there's you know, specific areas that you're focusing on and, and specific strategic rationale you'd love to explore. Um, technology companies, right? If there's something you wanna communicate, love to, you know, give you the floor to message that. And then secondly, uh, to the investment community, right? I believe you guys are in a, in a fundraise currently. So in, in regards to LPs who might wanna work with you guys or um, LPs that might want to buy your assets direct down the road or, or currently, um, any message you want to share? Yeah, I would say just, you know, from a strategic standpoint, I think people can look at us and say that, you know, we are willing to really narrow our focus on both the operator and the, and the play. And we, ha we are South Texas focused. Um, we've bought acreage in the, in most of the plays, uh, here and there. Um, but we, we really honed into the Eagleford because of, of a number of reasons. I think those are the key things to, that people should, when they think about biking, I think they should associate us with this, which is, you know, you've got British Petroleum, you've got ConocoPhillips, uh, major, uh, major companies, oil companies. You've got, you know, what I would consider uh, super independents, you know, some of the larger independent companies, Devon and EOG. Uh, and those companies create stability. Uh, through their own balance sheet and their future development programs, things that you can count on. That's what makes it prime real estate. So we have focused deeply on understanding the Eagleford. And, and, and I think that we'll use that as a platform to go into other basins that when, when they start to show the same qualities, we're okay not being the first person there. Um, and, and, you know, the, the perception that once a land rush has, has happened is just a complete falsehood. Uh, I mean, the guys, there are guys that are rolling stuff up in the, in the Permian Basin probably five years ago that are ready to sell now. And they're, you know, if they're positioned correctly and have the right asset, um, you know, just because they bought it from the original landowner doesn't make them all of a sudden the never seller. So we just want to focus on the operator and the geology as much as possible so that, you know, maybe we're not doing a deal a day. Maybe this isn't a land rush. That's okay. Um, we'll get the deals when, you know, the seller's expectations cross our willingness to pay the number, um, based on our underwriting, that's when the deals will happen. And I think the key for us is being out there in the market at scale and continue to do that. As far as the LP base goes, I think that I would just encourage them to think about that message. Uh, and, and I always like to make the real estate analogy because I think for people that, that are, uh, you know, are familiar with either vaguely familiar with oil and gas or familiar with real estate or just familiar with sort of that, that investing thesis. I think that <clears throat> what we offer is, is, is a good combination of what you would get from a sophisticated retail buyer at the wholesale level. So I think that, you know, where our returns are maybe mid to high teens, you know, we're giving you the direct access to the actual owner. In fact, 
uh, we have not bought um, you know, a marketed deal in our history. So every deal we've ever done has been direct to uh, direct sale from an existing owner. So I would say that that would be um, maybe not a huge differentiating factor, but that is something that we feel, you know, borderline religiously about. Um, you know, it's not the good deals you miss that kill you, it's the bad deals you take. So we just want to stick our nose in there and, um, and continue to, to work with the people in the areas that we that we're comfortable with that fit our profile and that will give the returns to our LPs that, uh, that we want. Awesome. All righty, Rand. Well, it's always a pleasure, my man. I, I appreciate you doing this and taking the time and um, we look forward to, to continue to work with you over the years as, as the Viking mineral story grows. And, you know, if anyone who's listening to this is interested in getting in touch with, with Rand, we'll, we'll definitely connect you offline, but, um, in the interim, best of luck with everything and, and on the current raise and continue with the put capital to work. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Really appreciate you having me on and uh, enjoyed talking. Hey, guys, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you're interested in meeting Rand or any other CEOs and investors in our network, then you can get registered for our upcoming Minerals and Royalties conferences at the New York Stock Exchange on June 5th. And our Northam Royalties Assembly in Houston on October 21st. For more information, please visit www.oilcouncil.com or email me directly at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com. See you next time.